last week we started the series, This Is Us, it launched, and last week we talked about embracing the mess, the importance of sharing burdens with one another, being Jesus to others in a world that is searching for belonging. And so here's what I hope you walked away with last week. I know we kind of made a mess up here last week. If, if, if you missed it, look it up on YouTube. But here's what I hope you walked away with. That if you love people the way Jesus loved people, your life is going to get messy, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing. Because without a mess, with no mess, there is no ministry. If there's no mess, there's no opportunity. If there's no mess, there's no real need for Jesus. Because if your life is so perfect and pristine and clean, and you act like you got it all together all the time, then what in the world do you need Jesus for? Because here at our church, we just want to be real. We just want to be honest and say, listen, I'm just another sinner wanting to point you to Jesus. That's what we are all about. And so listen, if you are with us today and you feel like your life is a mess, welcome because... You belong with us is what, is, is what you are. If you feel like a misfit, man, that's a, that's a good name of a church or something. Uh, misfit Vineyard. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about changing the name. Um, that, no, okay, I heard a no. But that is, that is just simply who we want to be. We just want to be real. And so, again, if your life is a mess today, we think you are in the right place, okay? We're glad that you are here. Welcome. Uh, the scripture for today is from John chapter 18. Uh, and as you flip there, whether you have uh, a physical Bible or the Bible app, or you're downloading the Bible app right now because you want to keep up those appearances, don't do that. Uh, John 18 is where we're going to be. As you turn there, I want to tell you quickly about a time I experienced genuine fear in my life. Like maybe for you, you've had a couple of those experiences where you actually experienced genuine fear. Something happened in your life and it was out of control. Well, I was swimming out in the ocean. Maybe I was 13 or 14 years old and I had never experienced something called a rip current or, or the undertow before. Uh, and, and so I never experienced anything like that. If, if you are unfamiliar, basically it is a, a current of water that if you don't actively work against, it will take you out to the ocean or bring you down the beach based on what the current is doing. And it carried me, because again, I, I didn't know. I was just on a beach in North Carolina, and I didn't really know what was going on until maybe I was a quarter of a mile away from my parents up on the beach. And I look up and I think, like, oh, this building isn't my building, you know? And I begin to look for where my building is, and I can't really spot it. And, and anyway, uh, eventually realized where it was, and I got on the beach and I walked back, even though it was a quarter of a mile. If you've ever walked in sand, you know it's like a mile. And I made it back. The undertow is dangerous. And while you can still swim in the ocean and enjoy yourself, you need to be mindful of the undertow and make sure you are pushing back against it enough so it doesn't change your location. And so Christians today, if you are a believer, let me tell you that we are all in danger of an undertow. And if we are not careful, it will take us places that we do not intend to go. And I know this because it's true of my own soul. There are plenty of things in the world that can get the best of us and carry us down, carry us out of where we belong. For example, you know, there is very real sin that we think we can get away from time to time. But then it, it's like it carries us somewhere. 
Like, like sure, there's gossiping about others. There's, there's lying. There's falling down into a sin cycle involving pornography. I mean, those are real. And there is grace to come away from that. But also, there are less assuming things that can carry us away. Maybe when I don't know about you, but maybe when you encounter someone who has a strong and very wrong opinion and you feel like you need to be the one to correct that, right? Or is it just me, right? Whether that's online or in a group text, right? It's like we get some keyboard courage and all of a sudden, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to fight, you know? Maybe it happens in a small group. Please, God, don't do that, okay? You're gonna have to have a meeting with me if that happens. But we we get caught up in these things is what I'm saying right? We can get caught up in these things. Me too. And, and those things are what I will call for our purposes today, the undertow, okay? Essentially, anything outside of the kingdom of God could qualify as undertow. And man, do we have so many things that can, that can subtly but certainly change our direction or our placement. I think there are well many well-meaning Christians who have good intentions but are simply fighting cultural battles that they are not meant to fight. I know it's true of my life too. When, when I allow issues of the cultural undertow to get the best of my attention, I always, without fail, harm my witness to others. And so Christians, we are called to be kingdom people. And that means that we are to live differently than the world, practicing the way of Jesus. But sometimes we get bogged down into shrinking the kingdom of God into our latest cause. I do it. I know you do it, right? So hear me out. I think mature faith, I think it informs our convictions and our opinions on such matters. I think mature faith should even humble us to maybe even see things differently. But mature faith does not do so without forgetting kindness, gentleness, and patience, and grace, and self-control, and and, and others. I mean, when was the last time your disagreement honored God? When was the last time your disagreement argued the person, uh, honored the person you were arguing with? Here's my simple definition of kingdom people. If you call yourself a Christian, we are all about the kingdom of God. We are kingdom people. Kingdom people, they are Christians who are commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the works of the kingdom of God. In other words, kingdom people are so consumed by the Spirit of God that it's hard to distract them with anything else. Notice I I didn't say it's impossible to distract them, okay? It's just, it's hard because you're so sold out to this mission, to this purpose of God. Uh, as 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Like, there is a calling, there's a purpose for this. But listen, there is an abundant grace when we do get distracted, when we do get consumed by things other than God's kingdom. We just live in a world where we have to resist getting pulled into other things. Jesus not only spoke words about the kingdom, but he went around Israel doing the works of the kingdom. He was destroying the works of the evil one um, when when he brought uh, physical and spiritual wholeness to people. Jesus had a message of good news, but he also had a ministry to back it up. And I just think the church should look like that. We have the good news, but we need the ministry to back it up. 
the ministry to the poor, the ministry to the sick, the, the ministry to the forgotten, where we get to do the stuff of the kingdom of God. So I just want to highlight a conversation that Jesus has with another man today about the importance of being kingdom people, the importance of remembering that there is a kingdom of God. And that at times we can get sucked into these undercurrents, but I, we should work diligently to be kingdom people. So setting this up, this is a moment where Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish leaders on a political charge of sedition. And he's put on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Uh, kingdom people, read with me John 18, picking up in verse 28. You should see it behind me as well. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, he's the high priest at the time, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And so Jesus, just so you know, he had been up all night, and now he's under this illegal interrogation. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Isn't that fascinating? Because these people are still so religious, even though they're attempting to murder Jesus. They are still so religious, they don't want to enter the headquarters. It's wild. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. He's a threat, right? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Just so you know, in the first century, Israel is under Roman occupation. And while the Jews had a, a measure of, I guess uh, you could call it judicial leeway. Capital punishment was reserved for the empire. They couldn't do that. And so that means prison for these Jewish leaders. Prison is not enough. They're out for blood. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Just to clarify, this is an absolutely loaded question that we may read over and not understand the significance of because we don't hear it the, the way the context would reveal to us because we live in a democracy, not a monarchy. And so you get that maybe Jesus is king, but in the context, king of the Jews, it was an official political title and there was already a king of the Jews and his name was Pilate, okay? So this would be like if President Biden approached a radical teacher who was sweeping the nation and talking about the country of God. And if President Biden asked him, are you president of the United States? What do you mean country of God? Listen, y'all, the FBI would be involved. It would be a major problem. Our elected officials would be trying to figure out what is going on, right? That is what's happening right here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And he's like, what are you talking about? The country of God for us? It's the same thing happening here with Pilate and Jesus. But Jesus, his response is as brilliant as ever. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus is saying, is this your own idea? Or is this what you heard about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? And many scholars believe that this question is actually a racist dig against Jesus because Romans looked down at Jews. Uh, Pilate goes on, 
Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, pay close attention to this next verse. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, for our purposes today, my country is not of this world. My primary allegiance is not of this world. Another way to understand the Greek here is also to read it as, my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus goes on, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My servants, he's saying, would rally. My servants would take guns, ammunition. They would fight for me. They would go to war with Rome. But my kingdom is not from this world. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Notice how Pilate doesn't have a political category for Jesus. This sophisticated and educated Roman governor is so confused, and he's just trying to place Jesus. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Pause. Is it to overthrow Rome? In the name of justice, is it to overthrow the Roman Empire? No. Jesus says here, this is why. This is his purpose. Ready, church? He came into this world to bear witness to the truth. Other translations will say to testify to the truth. He's saying, I'm not a political king. No, I'm not going to fight with violence, but with truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In Greek, the words listen and obey are actually the same. So to be a true disciple of Jesus, yes, is to listen to him. Also, to obey and surrender and yield to him. Everyone who is of the truth obeys my voice. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Man, we still trying to answer that question, aren't we, millennials? Yeah, I don't see any Gen Zers yet. Um, so two millennia before uh, but before the, the French postmodernists ask, what is truth? Here's Pilate doing the same thing. Much like our city, much like our culture, you know, what is truth? You have your truth, I respect it. I got my truth, you respect it. You know, that's not quite how truth works, y'all, okay? Just so you know. Because Jesus, he came, right, to testify to the truth, right? But that's why what's happening here isn't really about truth, it's about power. Do you see that? You see that? It's, it's not really about truth, it's about power and dynamics. Let's continue in verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. The timing here is fascinating. Just so happens that here's the custom. Jesus is arrested and this is going on. So Pilate asks, who do you want to release to you, the king of the Jews. He's saying this, no doubt, with a sarcastic tone. You know, the king of the Jews, so to speak. And the crowd, they cried out, not this man. Right here, they reject Jesus. They reject the kingdom of God. They reject him and his deity in favor of the world. The crowd says, Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Now, now Barabbas, just so you know, Historically, he had taken part in a revolt and was known as a revolutionary of sorts. 
there is something lost in the translation here from the Greek to English, and that is that Barabbas' name is more literally Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. This is a true story, but also a brilliant literary device from the gospel writer and how they are doing a very real uh, compare and contrast of these two Jesuses. You have Jesus, the Son of Man, and Bar-Jesus, two revolutionaries, one whose way is truth and self-sacrificial, non-violent, enemy, love, and the other who is believed, who, who, who believes in a revolution brought about by blood. And the people rejected Jesus in the name of Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus. He represents the, the undertow and like the people of the story, we too are, de- are deceived when we settle for a faux Jesus more often than we want to admit. And I believe this happens when we elevate matters of the world and we blend it in with the kingdom of God. Rejecting love in the name of violence is nothing new. And we see that in our text today. But also we see it when we just look at our phones, don't we? When you just open your phone, you know? Sometimes I think, man, I just want to wake up and have a nice little quiet time. And I unlock my phone, and it's like NPR news story, you know, this, this terrible thing happened, you know, 30 miles away. And you're like, oh, gosh, it's 6 a.m. I wasn't prepared for this, right? It's like we're, we're constantly bombarded with all sorts of tragedy and bloodshed. The story is more relevant than ever. So, so just for a few more minutes, I want to elevate really just one verse, verse 36. I want to elevate this. And if you're taking notes, uh, this is something for you to write down, okay? Let's elevate this, and I'm just going to pull a couple of points from it. Jesus says, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. But my kingdom is not from this world. And so anytime before you read or watch the news, maybe you need to commit this verse to memory. Maybe it would be good to read this out loud before you turn on your local news. My kingdom is not of this world. So whatever I'm going to be bombarded with, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. So if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I follow Jesus, then you are part of the kingdom people, simply meaning you belong to another kingdom. What Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God, of which Jesus made strong distinctions between it and the world that we occupy. But here is something true of us, no matter what. If you are a Christian, your primary identity, it comes from this simple truth. We belong to another kingdom. We belong to another kingdom. Other things matter, okay? They do matter. But nothing is ahead of this statement. If you are a Christian... You belong to another kingdom because there are a lot of things to extrapolate here from Jesus and how we are to interact with one another, how we should do justice, how we should go about understanding the role of politics. But, but, but none of that, but none of that to really be examined in here. I just want to give us three reminders that should inform how you love one another. Three reminders that should inform how you do justice. Three reminders that should inform how you understand the role of politics in our lives as Christians. So, in a series, this is us. Well, I think this should be us, okay? Just three quick reminders based on the simple idea that we belong to another kingdom, okay? The, the, the first one may be a bit obvious, but I like, but I, I like to remind myself of this. 
And often when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself all week long already, okay? So, so you're getting a lot of stuff that I feel like the Lord is also just like kicking me with in, in a loving kick, right? Um, but again, they're, they're reminders, they are reminders for you and your heart, okay? So don't be troubled. Number one, we are not in control of what does or doesn't happen. We are not in control. Whether America's best days are behind or ahead, uh, I mean, that's huge. But on a smaller level, you are not in control if you skid off the road and hit a curb, okay? I cannot represent, I, I can represent King Jesus well, as maybe I share him with my kids, with my friends, with my coworkers. I can represent King Jesus really well to that. And I can also represent King Jesus really well, really, really well when I'm stuck in the line at Taco Bell and it's too, it's too narrow and I can't leave, you know? I can show a little supernatural patience. I can be kind to the employees. You're not in control. You're not in control. Can you tell your neighbor, you're not in control? Go ahead right now. Say, you're not in control. Say it. Come on. You're not in control. It's okay. It's church. You can talk. It's all right. It's all right. I'm not in control. Thank you. I'm not. No matter, listen, church, no matter your situation, your calling remains the same. Be kingdom people. Be all about Jesus and inviting others to know him and be loved by him. Christian, take heart. We are not in control, no matter how tempting that prospect is. Listen, it's an extreme example. Buckle up, okay? You know it's coming. But I still believe it's reflective of a haunting truth. But over the last two years, I mean, gun sales here in the United States are at an all-time high. All-time high, y'all. We've been around since 1776. All-time high. We've been through a couple of world wars. Nope. We've been through a civil war. We've been through all sorts of things. No, gun sales, all-time high in the last two years right now. And believe it or not, this is true of all people, regardless of political persuasion. All people. It's all-time high. And I think this is reflective of a deep-seated desire for control. And it's motivated by fear. The fight for control is not one fought, is, is, is not one we should fight because when we fight for control, it's not because, gosh, I love you so much, I can't wait to control you. I love you so much, I just want to get back my control. I want to act like I know what's happening in the world. No, no. The motive is fear, fear of other people, fear of them over there. And when fear is the motive, I'm calling that the undertow. It's good up here on the surface, but I'm dying on the inside, right? I'm up here enjoying the ocean up top. It's a good time, but I'm just, I'm so bogged down by fear. It's going to change my location, right? But I can still post on Instagram. Life's great. It's so great. God is good, but it's changing my location constantly, right? Because I'm so full of fear, but I'm not letting y'all see it. I'm just changing locations, look like a weirdo, right? But this is what happens with an undertow of fear is that it, it takes us places that we don't belong. I don't know about you, but oftentimes uh, knowing I'm not in control is honestly the greatest relief to me. Uh, my kids maybe are crazy today, and, and maybe they've sacrificed the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am praying heaven to fall on their heads today. Don't own those days. Praise God, because why? You're not in control. You don't need to take ownership of that. Oh, I've messed up my kids. Did, did you? You're not in control. Don't own that. 
take a deep breath. It's okay. Because I think kingdom people could do some great work in the world if we stopped complaining about how scary everything is and we simply got to work loving our neighbors. Who would have thought? What a revolutionary idea. That's Jesus, y'all. That's Jesus. We need to take a deep breath and recognize, recognize we're not in control. Worship God. It's okay. The second point is simply we must eliminate any and all contempt from our heart. Here's what contempt is. If you don't know, I have a definition for you. Honestly, I have a great definition for you. And you know where I got it? The depravity of my own soul. Because I struggle with contempt. I'm just being real, okay? Contempt is when you take one part of a person, usually something you despise. Uh, Maybe it's their political view, what they did, what they said to you, whatever. And you define that person by that thing alone. It is so quiet in here, y'all. Like, oh my gosh. I just hope he doesn't talk about fill in the blank. It's true, though. When you do that, You demonize that person. You demean that person. You lower them in your moral and intellectual estimation. And in doing so, you elevate yourself so that you can enjoy the incredible feeling of moral superiority. Ah, it tastes so good. Could we not, though? In Matthew 5.22, Jesus warns against uttering the phrase raka when we're angry. And that could be understood today as, as calling someone stupid or a fool. I think, I think we have raucous spirits when, when we hold contempt against other people. You know, when, when you think of yourself as morally or culturally or intellectually or ethically better than them and you look down at them and you look at that whole person and you say, you raucous. You, to contextualize it here in the United States, you racist. You Marxist, you bigot, you woke idiot, you whatever, fill in the blank. It is contempt. Kingdom people are quick to banish any and all contempt from their hearts. I think contempt is honestly the most acceptable sin in the world right now. Thanks, internet. Okay, because it's like we get away with it all the time and we, and we claim, well, it's, it's in the name of truth. I'm pushing back against that thing. So I get to be contemptuous. You do not. Kingdom people work hard to eliminate being so contemptuous. And and really, I do think contempt has always been around. Certainly as long as people have been around. We've been contemptuous with one another. But I think it's really magnified and it's multiplied in our age today. I really think we can often represent the worst parts of ourselves. And then we get defined by those things online, right? Uh, It's definitely true of my generation. And I say that because I'm tempted to do the same thing. When, when, when I do embrace the contempt, my motives are impure. I am being arrogant. I am being pretentious and prideful and, yes, contemptuous. Contempt can also be present when we name call, when we use sarcasm, when we use snide comments, when we hold on to cynicism or bitterness. Any hate, all of it is anti-love. Don't slip into that undertow, but remain kingdom people. Fight against the feeling, the emotion, the desire to just 
Come on, I just need to lay into him. I just need to tell him the truth. Is that us? No. Contempt is always suspicious and gives no room for grace or understanding. Kingdom people work hard to eliminate all contempt from their hearts. That's us. This is us. And it's a lesson I'm still learning all the time. Sometimes I think, I see something online, I'm like, listen, I could just educate them. I could just help them see the error of this way. And you know what? They always read my comments, and they always think, you know, I didn't know that before. Thank you so much. I am so enlightened. And the way you presented it in such a non-condescending manner. Church, I know I'm not the only one suffering with that, right? Amen. Amen. Right, right, right. I just think kingdom people, they work hard, right, to do that. And I bring up contempt because, man, I think it just affects all of us in different ways, different degrees. Some of you aren't really on social media. Praise God, you are super holy. Pray for me later. Um, Others of us, maybe we're in the in-between. Oh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not on the devil's app. No, that's TikTok. I'm not over there. Then others of us, we're just all in here. Pray for them. These are missionaries over here, okay? But contempt is real, okay? Uh, I'm running out of time. Number three, number three, number three. Uh, I think the highest form of Christian maturity is enemy love. Can I just be honest? In my flesh, I hate that. I hate it. I like a good fight. I like a good argument. And I like to say, hey, no offense, and then I mean all the offense, you know? No offense, but full offense intended. The highest form of Christian maturity is enemy love, okay? Um, The first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he talks about anger, about contempt. And the last teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, within that flow of thought, is in Matthew 5. You'll see this behind me, verse 43. Jesus said, "You've, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Interesting, that's not in the Bible, by the way. Even in the Old Testament, that may intimidate you. It never says hate your enemy, right? But Jesus, he's still confronting this line of thought because it's common to humans, okay? He didn't say you've read. He said you've heard it said, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying, do not even non-believers, for our purposes today, do, don't, don't even the non-Christians greet their own tribe. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, The word perfect there in Greek is teleos. And another way to understand it is mature. Become who you were meant to become as an apprentice of Jesus. Grow and mature. Be complete in love. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Since the beginning, the greatest sign of spiritual maturity 
Honestly, just maturity, maybe. Not even spiritual maturity, just maturity. Is our ability to love our neighbors. Because listen, it is so easy to love your friends. It is so easy to love the coworker you do get along with. It is so easy to love people who look like you and dress like you and think like you and vote like you and approach the pandemic the same way that you do, who talk like you, who tweet like you, who laugh at the same stupid cat memes that you do. It's so easy to love people who are just like you, right? But it is very hard to love people who you disagree with, who you debate with, or it's hard to love your enemies. It's hard to love people that you would say are evil, people that you would say are a threat. There's no caveat, love your enemies. But God, they're evil, love your enemies. But God, they would threaten my life, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love them. Pastor John Tyson, he says this in his book, Beautiful Resistance. He says, uh, quote, Given the role of the media today, the polarization of our politics, and the presence of a 24-hour income-producing news cycle, we are told who is deplorable and who is worthy of respect. We are told who our enemies are and why they present a savage threat to us. Things are not presented to us in a fair, nuanced, or civil way. Hate is being cultivated one social media post at a time. Each 15-second soundbite or meme is training us to release hate on our enemies. So if you want to know how mature you are, or said another way, how loving you are, don't look how you treat your friend group, the people you hang out with. Look at how you treat your enemies. Examine your social media feed and your interactions. Think about the ways you speak to people you disagree with. Internet comments count, by the way. Listen, I believed that lie for too long. It doesn't count. I'm full of keyboard courage. Here I am. But those count. Notice the things that you mutter under your breath when you read the news about that certain person. Notice the bitterness, maybe, that takes root in your heart when you hear an outlandish quote from that guy, from that girl again. I think we need to examine ourselves. We simply need to examine ourselves. This is, this is scriptural. It's, 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 it's biblical. It should be a normal thing that, that people who follow Jesus do, that we examine our hearts. And I think we need to do that today 